Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abirachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for this Shabbat, for this opportunity that you have given us to uh, come into your midst and to encounter you, to hear from you, and to meet with you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your voice heard and received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. And Father, I pray that you will grab a hold of us, that we will leave this place changed and transformed to not only encounter the world around us, but to be able to impact the world around us with the truth, the knowledge, and the glory of your holy name, B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. So this week we are in Parsha Beshalach, uh, which is Exodus 13, 17 through 17, 16. Um, if you have paid attention to uh, the Parshot through the book of Shemot through Exodus thus far, you'll notice that we are now at the point in time in which the nation of Israel is going to officially cross the Yam Suf or the Sea of Reeds, what is often translated in English texts as the Red Sea. Um, and so this is kind of what we're going to be dealing with today, but we're going to look at it maybe from a little different perspective than perhaps you have uh, in the past. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 13, beginning with verse 17. This is the very beginning of the Parsha, Exodus 13, verse 17. After Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, although that was nearby. For God said the people might change their minds if they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Sea of Reeds, and Bnei Israel went out, went up out of the land of Egypt armed. So we're going to pause there. So I want to set the scene up for you that we're progressing through as we look at the nation of Israel and particularly their wilderness journey. So this is what we know. Hindsight, you know, we're some. 5,000 give or take years, 4,000 give or take years from Israel leaving Egypt. So obviously very extended hindsight. In hindsight, we can look at this knowing that there are going to ultimately be two generations of Israel in the wilderness. One that dies out in the wilderness and one that is either birthed or raised in the wilderness and moves into the promised land and the promises of God crossing over the Yarden, the Jordan River. So this is the first generation of of the nation of Israel. This is this generation that is going to, in a moment, that is going to leave Egypt in a mighty thrust. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Exodus, the Lord says, he doesn't say, I'm going to allow Pharaoh to allow Israel to leave. But instead, the Hebrew says that he is going to, Pharaoh, he's going to cause Pharaoh to cast Israel out, to abruptly send them running, right? And so the first time that Moses goes to Pharaoh and Moses goes, hey, um... Let my people go. Pharaoh's, eh, no, that's not going to happen. I don't see this going down. And progressively, the, the ask, the request gets a little more severe and a little more severe and a little more severe through the plagues and so on until ultimately we get to the final plague, the death of the firstborn, in which Pharaoh does in fact call Moses and says, look, get out now. All of you, get up and run. Leave tonight. Do not come back. Do not look back. Get out. So this is the first generation of Israel leaving Egypt. And what's really interesting about the first generation of Israel is all they ever knew prior to this point was that Egypt provided for them. 
All they ever knew was that everything they needed, they got from Egypt. They never had to depend on the Lord. They never had to consider the Lord. Everything was given to them. Now, that doesn't mean they had an easy life. And we see pretty quickly as Israel is moving into the wilderness that it's, it's rather easy to forget the difficulties of the past and to cleave to the kind of mythological concepts we have of the past, right? So it's really easy as Israel goes in the wilderness and goes, come on, we had plenty of meat, we had food, we had access to everything we could ever want in Egypt, and here you bring us out to the wilderness to die. Are you kidding me? Ignoring the fact that they were in fact enslaved and chained uh, that they were worked from sunup till sundown and beyond, that it was hard labor, that they were uh, uh, burdened because the, the Egyptian leadership was afraid that they would overtake them, and so on and so forth. And so they, this first generation who never had to trust in the Lord, they only waited, although grumbling and begrudgingly, right? We know that the Lord says, I have heard my people's cry because of the turmoil that they're in. So they've been grumbling and complaining, which as we see is not uncommon for them uh, or for the Jewish people as a whole. We're really good at that. So they've been grumbling and complaining the whole time that they're in slavery, but all they can remember in the wilderness is how easy things were in the, the nation of Egypt because they didn't have to wait on the Lord. They didn't have to trust in the Lord. Everything was given to them. So here the Lord says in, uh, in verse 17, after Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, although that was nearby. In other words, it was the easiest route, right? Straight line, the quickest point from A to B. This was the A, the, the A to B straight line, the quickest point. And the Lord knew that that would not pan out well. He says the people might change their mind if they see war and return back to Egypt. Is that far-fetched? We don't get out of this Parsha before they're going, can we just go back? As a matter of fact, we don't get across the Yom Suf before they're going, can, can we just, we, we, it was pretty good back there. Like, there's not enough graves here. Let's, let's go back there. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Sea of Reeds. And B'nai Israel went up out of the land of Egypt armed. This is a really interesting line. They left Egypt armed. Right? They left with Egypt's armory. All Egypt had left were some really good chariots. We can look a little further and see that. That's all they had left were some really good chariots. Other than that, Israel left with everything. So the Lord sent them out, subverted them going against war, even though they had all of the necessary weapons and equipment to do so, and brought them to a place where their faith would be tried, and they would never actually have to use the weapons that were placed in their hands. But think about that. If it's you and I, and we're running from the enemy, whatever that enemy may be, and we're running from it, and we have weapons in hand, most of us are going to turn around and start popping rounds off until we run out, right? But Israel's got weapons in hand, and all they can do is quiver in fear. So verse, uh, the, the rest of this section talks about how as they left uh, and they were journeying along that the presence of the Lord uh, stayed before Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, providing light to them in the evenings and providing direction to for them uh, throughout their journeys. And in particular, verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never departed from the people. Right? Think about that. So you just went through all these plagues. You just witnessed all of these miraculous events occur on your behalf. 
And now you are being cast out of Egypt just as the Lord promised was going to happen. You're being freed from slavery. Here is this monster sign from God that he is with you as you look in front of you and there's this pillar of cloud and fire that is providing direction and uh, light and everything else that you need sitting right in front of you. And yet you still don't have the faith to trust that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So we go forward to verse uh, chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, B'nai Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. So they were terrified. Remember, God said, I'm going to send you this route so that Egypt will see you and go, hey, they're lost. Let's go get them. The Egyptians see it. They realize they're lost, and they chase after them. So they were terrified, and B'nai Israel cried out to Adonai. They said to Moses, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness because there were not enough graves in Egypt? Why have you dealt this way with us to bring us out of Egypt? Did we not say to you in Egypt, let us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? It was better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. My, how quickly they forget what they were really dealing with in Egypt. My, how quickly they were yearning for the past rather than the future that lays right in front of them. Verse 13, but Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand still, and see the salvation of Adonai, which he will perform for you today. You have seen the Egyptians today, but you will never see them again, ever. Adonai will fight for you while you hold your peace. Stand still and see the salvation that God is providing for you today. Adonai will fight for you while you hold your peace. They're fully armed. They are ready for war, albeit they may not realize it. And the Lord says, I will fight for you. You won't have to raise a finger. You just sit here and relax, and I will take care of this. As a matter of fact, if we go forward to the book of Joshua, this is exactly what we see in the first two or three battles in the promised land, is that the Lord provides the victory, and Israel just has to go in and clean up the mess. Right? Imagine if this generation stood at the walls of Jericho and the Lord said, look, I just want you to take a hike around the land, uh, the city for seven days and at the very end just be really loud for a few minutes and I'll take care of the rest. This generation's going, that's just stupid. What are you No, we're not doing it. Let's just go back. This isn't worth our time. Let's just head back. But the second generation, on the other hand, all they ever knew was trusting in God. All they ever knew was the provision of the Lord. All they ever knew was that for 40 years they wandered around the wilderness with shoes that didn't wear out, clothes that didn't wear out, their bellies were never empty, and there was always food and water provided for them. And the presence of the Lord was in their midst at all times. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of Adonai, which he will perform for you today. You've seen the Egyptians today, but you will never see them again, ever. Adonai will fight for you while you hold your peace. And this is exactly what happens. The Lord fights for them. They hold their peace. As a matter of fact, if we look at the, the narrative and the rest of the story, they're sitting here. And the way I, I don't know about you guys, when I read the word, like when I read anything in my mind, it's playing out, right? In my mind, I'm watching this play out in my head like a movie, right? First off, anybody wants to make a movie about the Bible as it actually is, dude, it would have everything anybody ever want out of Hollywood, right? Including all the stuff we don't want out of Hollywood. It's there. Uh, this is, it, it's, it's a blockbuster ready to happen. But in my head, I picture this. 
as Israel is, is wandering along, the Lord has not taken them the easiest route, but instead has taken them to the Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds. And in my head, I picture that uh, because it talks about how they, the Egypt says they've been funneled in and they can't go anywhere and we can rush up on them. In my mind, I picture there's the waters of the Yamsuf in front of them. And on either side are these rock faces that they can't climb that are holding them corralled into this area and the masses of Israel are just sitting there waiting for the inevitable to crash down upon them. And as they're sitting here and they're crying out to Moses saying, dude, what in the world is wrong with you? Why did you do this to us? Let us go back. All of a sudden they start hearing these chariots and these horses echoing through this tunnel that they're stuck in. And they hear it, they can't see it, right? You, you, you watch movies where you see the, the, the bad guys are rushing in and you can hear the footsteps, but you can't quite see them yet. And then they kind of crest over the ridge and, and all of a sudden you can see how many there are. I picture this with Israel sitting in the Yom Suf, that they can hear the sounds of the horses and the chariots and the armies coming after them. And they're quivering. Keep in mind, there's not a lot of them left, right? All of the firstborns of Egypt had died. And that's not just the little firstborns. That's all of them. Some of the horses that drove the chariots, that drug the chariots along, were probably firstborn and died. Think about it. The army wasn't what it was the day before. And they hear this crashing down upon them, and all they can do is quiver in fear and scream out, let us go back. We were better off just serving Egypt than we are dying here. I want you to listen to that. Let's translate it into what they're actually saying. We are better off serving the enemy than we are walking in the promises of God. We are better off in our past than we could ever be in our future. And then they see the armies and the chariots rushing over the, the top of the crest of the hill. And as they're coming down and clamoring through, they begin to quiver even more. And they're screaming and crying out as the armies of Egypt are about to crash down upon them. And then something unfathomable occurs. All of a sudden, the cloud, the presence of the Lord, which this is nighttime, which means this cloud is really fire, picks up from in front of them and moves behind them and forms a barrier between Israel and Egypt. And it says that on Israel's side, there was light. And on Egypt's side, there was darkness. Or more specifically, the Hebrew gives the idea that there was confusion. There was clamoring. They were lost. They didn't know what was going on. But the Egyptians could not see the Israelites, and they could not rush after the Israelites, and they could not get to the Israelites. Remember when the Lord says, or Moses says, stand still and do not be afraid and see the salvation the Lord is going to provide for you. He will fight for you while you hold your peace. Imagine Israel running those words through their head as the presence of God descends on the other side of them and provides this barrier. And then he tells Moses, now go out to the waters and just hold your rod out. And I'm sure Moses is going, all right, this kind of feels ridiculous, but it worked out okay back in Egypt. Let's see what happens. Nobody's looking. Let's just, whoa, okay, it is working. It's parting, and the waters begin to part. And, uh, you know, the song of Moses, we get... Uh, Mocha from the prayer Micha Mocha and uh, the sages tell us uh, in the Talmud that uh, and this is just image for you to, to kind of hold on to that Israel begins to sing these words Micha Mocha as they're walking into the sea of reeds because the Lord says now start moving and go in and that they're screaming they're singing out 
As they're walking out in the waters and they get ankle deep and nothing's happening, but they still walk and they're still singing and they get knee deep. And they walk out a little further and now they're waist deep and nothing's happening. The waters are still still, but they're still walking out and they're still singing out, who is like you, O God? And they walk out a little further and they get up to their chest deep and the waters are still still and nothing's happening. And Moses is standing there with the rod the way the Lord told him to do and they're still singing, who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, O Lord? And they walk out a little further and the water is about to crest up over their mouth and their nose where they can no longer breathe, but they're still singing. And I picture in in reading this traditional uh, uh, commentary, I picture as Israel's kicking their necks back to take that breath and they're still proclaiming, who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, O Lord? And just as the waters are about to crest their mouth, the waters part, and they continue to walk through completely dry and on completely dry ground. Now think about that. This is a sea of water, right? The Lord doesn't just move the, 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 the water to the side so that Israel can get through, but he makes the path in front of them completely dry. You ever walked in water, you know, when the, the, the uh, tide starts to sur- you know, go back and you walk out, it's kind of mushy and muddy and your shoes get stuck in it and it's hard to walk. It was completely dry. They walked through on completely dry ground. And the water stayed like that and the ground stayed like that until every single one of the Israelites, including the mixed multitude that left with them, which the Midrash tells us could be as many as five times the number of Israelites as there were Uh, which tells us 602,000 Israelites that were all males. That doesn't count the women and children of that number, which means at least another two-thirds that, plus possibly five times that of the nations that left with Israel as part of this mixed multitude. And it says that they traveled through all in one night and got to the other side, and the water stayed parted the entire time. And as they get to the other side, all of a sudden the presence of God lifts and meets them back on the other shore, and the nation of Egypt goes, we can get them, go! And they start to rush in. And just as they rush in, these ground, the, the, the ground that at one point was completely solid and dry for Israel is now muddy. And their chariots start to get stuck. And their feet start to get stuck. And they can't go anywhere. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh starts going, this was a bad idea. Because you remember, the Lord said, I will show you my victory over Egypt today. I will make my name great over Egypt today. And the very next thing that happens, and I picture it as soon as the last foot of Israel is on safely on dry ground on the other side of the seas, the waters completely crash down and drowned the armies of Egypt. And the Lord does in fact provide phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, miraculous freedom and victory for Israel in ways that they could have never imagined. But it wasn't enough because as soon as they get to the other side, they start to complain because the waters are bitter and there's no food and they're hungry. And in Egypt, they had all the meat they could ever want and they could have everything they ever needed. And why, Moses? Oh, why did you bring us out here to die? And as I was reading this Parsha, it made me think of a very familiar story that sounds very much like this, that actually ends up with the exact same outcome, but a much greater spiritual reality being portrayed. If you go forward to John chapter 21... And I think it's really interesting looking at the correlation of these two stories. John chapter 21, this is after Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection. This is even after an appearance or two of Yeshua to his disciples post-resurrection. 
John 21, after these things, Yeshua revealed himself again to the disciples of the Sea of Tiberias. Now, here, uh, here is how he appeared. Simon Peter Thomas called the twin Natanel and, uh, of Cana in the Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and, the two, and two of the other disciples were together. I love that. And yeah, two other dudes. Yeah, they're not important. Just, there were two of the other ones. Just pick two. It'll work. Uh, two of the other disciples were together. Simon Peter. This is the one that the Lord uses to bring salvation on the Ruach HaKodesh to the nations. Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. Could you imagine walking for three years with Yeshua? And after three years of walking with Yeshua, all of a sudden Yeshua is not there anymore. You've watched him die. You know where he was buried. You know that he's not there anymore and there's these sightings that have occurred and, and Peter had even had a sighting, but Peter was still lost. For three years, everything he was was wrapped up in he, who Yeshua is. And then Yeshua was gone. And Peter's first reaction, I'm going back to what I used to do. I mean, this has been a fun run, but I'm going back fishing. At least I know that. I did that before. It's easy to be in the past. I can just go back fishing. And all the other disciples that were with them, we're coming with you too. They said they went out and got on a boat and that night they caught nothing. What is it Yeshua said to them when he called them in the first place? I'm calling you. And he says it to the ones that were fishermen that he called out. He says, I am making you fisher, fishers of men. Yeshua's death, burial, resurrection, the first thing they do is revolt back to who they used to be, back to their old identity, and they're unsuccessful. They go out fishing and they catch nothing. At dawn, Yeshua stood on the beach, but the disciples didn't know that it was Yeshua. So Yeshua said to them, boys, you don't happen to have any fish, do you? They're drawing in empty nets, and here's this dude on the shore. Hey, guys, you got any fish over there? No? And the disciples would scream back, are you freaking kidding me? Look at the, the nets are empty. What do you mean do we have any fish? By the way, if you pay attention to this, it tells us how far off they were uh, from the shore in verse, uh, what is it, verse 8. It says they were 200 cubits uh, offshore, which is about 300 feet, if I remember correctly, give or take. It's not that far of a distance, realistically, right? So they're, you know, maybe a football field or so away from the shore. So they potentially could have seen the nets. You know, the person on the shore could have seen the nets as they're pulling them in. And here's this sarcastic schmo going, hey, you don't have any fish, do you? And are you kidding me? Look at it. There's nothing in it. We're empty. Our boats aren't even, you know, teetering in the waters as we're pulling the nets in. And here this uh, supposed stranger to them in verse 6 says, uh, he said to them, throw the nets off the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And I imagine in their minds are going, we tried over there, and 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 yeah, whatever. Let's just humor this idiot. Throw the nets over the other side and see what happens. So uh, they threw the net, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Yeshua loved said, and I love I love, like some of my favorite lines in the Bible are Moses and the Torah saying Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. It's a very humble statement. Like, I like that. That's funny. And here, John, the, the disciple Yeshua loved most, and the disciple Yeshua loved over and over again. Therefore, the disciple whom Yeshua loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around himself, for he had strip, was stripped down for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat from about 200 cubits offshore, dragging the net full of fish, 
So when they got out of the boat, they saw a charcoal fire with fish placed on it and bread. And Yeshua said to them, bring some fish you've just caught. Verse 12, Yeshua said to them, come have breakfast. And the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing it was the Lord. Yeshua comes and takes the bread and gives it to them and likewise the fish. This was now the third time that Yeshua had revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then the next thing we read about is the encounter with Peter in which Yeshua redeems Peter's denial of him three times before Yeshua's death by asking him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Because I imagine Peter was mentally stuck in the past. Here's Yeshua standing in front of him, and he's excited to see him, but yet all he can think is, but he knows what I did. But he remembers that. I believe this is specifically why James tells us that it is important for us to confess our sins one to another. Because the reality is, is when we hold that in and we try to hide it from others because we're ashamed of it, we're afraid of it, we're giving the enemy ground in our lives. Ground that doesn't, he doesn't deserve because the Lord's already forgiven those sins when we repented of them, but we're holding on to them out of uh, shame and fear. And because of that, and us not sharing with anybody, because heaven forbid anybody think bad about us, the enemy comes by and goes, hey, you think the Lord loves you, but don't you remember last Thursday? Hey, don't you remember what you were like 20 years ago? Don't you remember the people you hurt back there? Don't you remember the messes you've made of your life over here and over there? And because we're afraid to share that with anyone, to let them help carry that burden with us and take the weight off of our shoulders, the weight just gets heavier and heavier and heavier and we become less and less effective for the kingdom of God because we're giving the enemy grounds in our life that he doesn't deserve and ground that has already been redeemed by the Lord but we're so stuck in the past that we can't see the benefit and the value of the future and I think it's interesting when we look at Israel crossing the Yom Suf that the very first thing out their mouth both before and after is we had it so much better in Egypt here we are looking at the promise of God revealed in front of us, and we had it better in Egypt. How could you do this to us, Moses? Let us go back. This first generation of Israel's identity was solely in the past. They had no room in their identity. They had no room in their thought process. They had no room in their lives for a potential of a future that God has promised. Everything the Lord was doing before them as he brought them literal salvation from the grip of the enemy in Egypt. All they could think about was, but I had it so much better before this. At least I had food in front of me. And if you pay attention to the account in Exodus, you pay attention to the account in John 21 in which the disciples do the same thing. Well, Yeshua's gone. We don't know what to do now. I guess we just go back to who we used to be. We go back to our old identity because we know that and we can be successful there. In both cases, in both cases, the Lord provides miraculously. And then the very next thing he does is he feeds them. And if you pay attention, in Exodus, he feeds them bread through the manhu, the manna that's provided for them in the morning. Feeds them bread, and he gives them water. Those are the first two things he provides for them. And here we see something similar. He gives them bread and fish, and there's this implication that they were already at the water, so they had access to that. But there's this idea of Yeshua as this bread and water, the, the bread of life, the water of life, this provision that all we need to do is depend on Him. And I think about these two correlating stories, and 
my mind immediately just hones in on this idea of the comparison between the two and, and how the reality is, is our lives are just way too similar to what we read about in the Torah portion this week and what we read about in John 21. Because when things get difficult in our lives, when things get difficult in uh, our path and following the direction of the Lord and where He's calling us, when the Lord puts a call on our hearts and we begin to chase it, almost immediately we go, but I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of, this was comfortable back here. It was easy back here. The Lord brings us salvation. We accept the blood atonement of Yeshua and we begin to walk in the reality of what that salvation is and something gets difficult in our lives and the first thing we do is go, clearly this wasn't God. I guess I'll just go back over to you know, this sin or that sin or the other sin. I'll just round myself back up into where I was before. And I wonder how often when the Lord lays a path of His provision, of His miracles, of His calling in front of us, how often when we see this and things begin to get difficult or scary in our faces right in front of us, how often do we find ourselves running back to our old ways instead of relying on the Lord? How often do we find ourselves running back to who we used to be, back to the old man, when the reality is, is everything we need, everything we want, and everything we could ever want is laying before us. We just have to trust in Him. It's so easy to run back. It's so easy to get uncomfortable. It's so easy to get afraid. But the Lord is still screaming the same words to us today that Moses was screaming to Israel in our Parsha this week. Be still and see the salvation that God is providing before you. He will fight for you while you hold your peace. Be still and trust in the Lord. Be strong and courageous and know that I go before you. How often we read these similar words over and over and over and over again in the Word of God and how often we find ourselves facing the reality of what lies in front of us as the first generation of Israel leaving Egypt does as Peter and the disciples do where we go, I just don't know what to do. I'm just going to go back here because it's comfortable. But Lord, if you could just leave me alone and let me stay where you've already placed me, I'm comfortable there. I know how things work and I can survive. The Lord says, I don't want you to survive. I want you to thrive. And here's how you do it. Follow me and trust in me and know that I have this. Get out of your own head. As John was, we were having prayer this morning as we do every Saturday. By the way, if you haven't joined us for prayer on Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock, please come and join us as we pray for our service when the Lord has in store. But this morning, John was praying and he said, uh, he goes, you know, uh, I realize the, that um, the idea of humility is so important because when we can't get out of our own way because of our own pride, really what we're doing is limiting who God is in us. And until there can be, uh, until we're in a place where there's less of us, there can't be more of Him. And He was crying out in general for us as humanity, for our families, our friends to. Uh, to, to, to find and seek the Lord's humility that He has for us rather than honing in on our own pride and our own ambitions and whatever else and trusting in Him. But that's the reality of what we're seeing here. Anytime we go backwards, it's really because of pride. We're too prideful to run into what God has in front of us because here and now is comfortable. We're too scared to see what else there is. We're too scared to see what could be laying before us. But I want to encourage you this morning. 
want to encourage you that the Lord's words are true and they are living and they never fade away. And he's screaming to you whatever direction he's taking your life right now, wherever it is that he's moving you, whatever it is that he's doing in your heart and life today, he's still screaming the same words to you that Moses was yelling over the nation of Israel. Be still and see the salvation that God will provide for you. He will fight for you while you hold your peace. He's screaming the same words over you that Joshua screamed to the nation of Israel. Be strong and courageous and know that God will go before you. He's screaming the same words that Yeshua was screaming to his disciples as they had reverted back to being the men of old. He tells them very simply and very patiently, I love you. Do you love me enough to trust me? Do you love me enough to know that I've got something greater in store? Do you love me enough to know that I am calling you to do this great and scary thing? But that I've got it handled and you just have to patiently wait for my leading. Sometimes the waiting is difficult because we get in our own heads. Sometimes the moving forward is difficult because of fear. But it doesn't matter what kind of excuses we come up with. It doesn't matter how much we want to cleave to the old man and the old ways. It's none of those were as good as what he has in store for us. He doesn't want us just to survive. He wants us to thrive. And he wants us to thrive in him. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you give us these examples over and over again in your word of how direly important it is for us to simply trust in you, to rely on you, and to know that you are at work, whether we see it or not. Father, I thank you for the grand miracles that you performed before the nation of Israel, and that in spite of their lack of faith, that you still move faithfully with them. That in spite of their rejection of you, you readily and continually embraced them. And Father, I thank you that the same is true in my life and in the life of each and every person hearing these words today. That no matter how much we reject you, no matter how much we grumble against you, no matter how much we complain, no matter how much we are ungrateful or how much fear we operate in, that you are ever ready with a loving embrace. And that you are always crying out for us to trust in you and to trust in the path you've already paved before us, whether we see it or not, it is there. Lord, I thank you for your love and encouragement. I thank you for your bolstering our faith, and I thank you, Lord, that you are at work right now in our midst as you continue to refine our identity in you, Lord. Not in our past, not in who we used to be, not in who we want to be, but as you refine our identity in you. Lord, we thank you and love you. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.